I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, But perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2 with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us uh, so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Welcome to Podcasts Like It's 1999. I'm your host, Phil Iskove, and with me today is past, present, and future guest, Jessica Ellis, uh, writer-director of What Lies West, which is available, I'm assuming, on all streaming Yeah, pretty much everywhere, yep. Wherever you, uh, wherever you can, please watch it. Um, and we're here to talk about episode 106, These Crackpots and These Women, Um I want to kind of rewind for a second, though, and take us back to 1999 and when The West Wing came into your life, if you've watched it since, how it holds up for you, if it doesn't hold up for you, that kind of stuff. 
How does yeah. the show uh, fall for you? It, uh, I watched it sporadically when it, when it came out. My parents were big fans and I was in, I was in high school um, when it came out and, and um, like, I kind of dropped in and out for, mm-hmm. for the first few seasons, but I loved it. I mean, it was great. It was just, I right. didn't necessarily want to watch it with my parents all the time, <laughs> um, sure, sure. Uh, but it was a show you could watch with your parents, which was not true of a lot of shows at the time. So sure. that was nice. But um, yeah, I've watched it. It has become an essential part of my uh, anxiety management since then. I, when I got when I got uh, divorced when I was in my twenties, uh, I literally sat on my parents' couch and watched it for like twelve hours a day for about three weeks. Wow. Uh, it was kind of all I could handle. Um, so yeah, I've watched it over and over again. Parts of it hold up amazing. I mean, parts of it are mm-hmm. wonderful. The characters are wonderful. Uh, parts of it definitely don't. Well, we'll talk about those parts yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of very dated things and a lot of very um, Sorkin-esque things that, mm-hmm. that probably shouldn't have worked so well at the time, but definitely don't sure. work now. Um, it's... Yeah, yeah. I, I, similar to you, the show is, and I imagine for many people, or at least if Twitter is to be believed, um, it's a show that's very calming. Um, it's it's very mellifluous in in its uh, the way people talk. It has a very sort of um, musical kind of feeling to it, and it's very inspirational and it's very idealistic um, and perhaps naive uh, as as we've seen with the current uh, political spectrum. That being said, um, I, I also just find it um, whenever I'm not feeling well, whenever I'm feeling down, uh, it just it just makes me feel better. Um, even if I fully recognize that uh, there are some things that don't work about it, and we will talk about those things. Um, we're also, you and I are going to talk about Sports Night uh, sometime in the future as well. So, you know, what uh, what Sorkin stuff we might not hit this time around, we certainly will hit with his earlier, uh, more overtly comedic half-hour ABC show um, that uh, also wrapped up while he was making this show, which is in itself pretty insane to think. Yeah, about. absolutely. Show running yeah. both shows, absolutely yeah. bananas. Yeah. And writing most of them. Yeah. Like just, God, I mean, it's insane. I don't know how he did it. I, I don't know how he did it either. I have theories, but they're not. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we, we know, we know that uh, he had extracurricular substances yeah. that were uh, certainly a part of his uh, writing regime. Um, but uh, how did it, so obviously you rewatched this specific episode. You've watched the show many times since. How has the show sort of aged for you while you've sort of become a writer in your own right and a director in your own right? And how do you, how do you view the show now uh, as opposed to back then? I mean, you know, I'm always just blown away by the characterizations. They are such deeply drawn, specific, interesting, uh, unfortunately, almost all white characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but they are, you know, ig- ignoring that that factor. Like, yeah. everyone is interesting. Everyone has deep psychological backstories that they get further and further into as the series goes along. Um, you know, you definitely notice the enormous hiccup that happens when Sorkin leaves the show and in, in, in season five. Um, and and I honestly, I enjoy the last, the last like season and a half. I, I think Jimmy Smith was a great ad and, and so was Alan Alda. They were really fun. Um, but it's, it's difficult to watch those seasons too because the characters twist in ways that you know are not authentic. And when you've spent 
four or five years getting to know these people down to their childhood traumas, you can tell when it's off. And as a writer, it's even more glaringly obvious now mm-hmm. that like people are, are acting vastly out of character a lot in the, in the back half. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I didn't rewatch season one and two during the election, during the 2020 election, specifically because I knew that we were going to be doing these and I I didn't want to watch them so quickly next to each other. Um, So I watched seasons three to the end and I had not watched season five and six that recently. Five is bumpy for sure, but it still has some really solid episodes once the show finds its footing. It does. And I agree with you that six and seven are quite good. I mean, they're they're not. I mean, again, it's when you compare it to the first four seasons, it's, it's an unfair comparison. The show is still very good in five and seven, in sort of six and seven. Um, but I agree with you. There's some pretzels that they twist these characters into to fit a more John Wellesian yeah. way of television, which again, not slagging John Wells by any means. Um, but it is interesting to think about. You know, you you have ER premiering in '94. This premieres in '99. So you've got a you know obviously a handful of of ER's unbelievably successful seasons, and you can feel ER's production in this mm-hmm. show. Yeah. Those long takes, the sort of uh, the busyness of of sort of artificiality of like craziness happening all the time. Um, but this show, and I, I'm I'm curious as to your thoughts on this. You know, Sorkin is notoriously not always thinking about what came before, right? Like, he just wants to tell the story now. Like, he's more in the now. So serialization is not necessarily something at the forefront of his writing. And you do feel that... um, in terms of like even just Bradley Whitford, I have this quote here, which I think is quite interesting, um, where he said, uh, but as for getting to know my West Wing character, I really do wait for Aaron to tell me about Josh. We were a year and a half into the series when I did an episode in which I talk about my sister dying in a fire when she was babysitting me, but I had to run outside. I realized, oh, I'm a guy whose sister died when he was 16. There's a lot we didn't know about these characters that we establish as we go along. How do you feel about that, Jessica? Because I'm not sure that that's necessarily the best way to be writing a television show, but, I mean, you tell me. I mean, it definitely throws stuff at his actors, although that wasn't a year and a half into the show. What, like, that yeah, gets no. talked about in this episode. And correct, so that's correct. five episodes in. Um, I think he was referring to Noel, which was the yeah. more sort of the real unpacking of it, but it is definitely spoken of here. I mean, unless you hand someone, a you know, an annotated biography on their character up front, there's always going to be stuff that you reveal as you go along. Um, I, I think what they did so well was cast these people so that you could go to these, you know, I'm sure Sorkin was feeding off of them and who sure, they are yeah. as people, as actors. Um, and, and it was probably a, a kind of a mutual back and forth thing, but yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing about Sorkin, especially Sorkin versus Wells is that Sorkin is not afraid to let the only stakes be philosophical and Wells wants the stakes to be stakes. <laughs> Wells yeah. wants someone to be dying. Tangible, tactile. Someone to yes, be fighting. Yes, yes. And yes, and yes. like and but the, the the thing you can't argue with in the first four seasons is that the just philosophical stakes actually work. Yeah. I wish more shows were unafraid to be about totally. less external obstacles. Um, but you also have to be really good in order to do that. So that can this go badly. Is also- wrong. A hundred percent. I mean, it's, it's, 
because so much of politics is theoretical, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's why it works so well for Sorkin, right? A guy who loves um uh, uh, arguments of ideas, right? Like yeah. it's it's too it's it's a very intellectual uh, exercise for him in a lot of ways, even if it is emotional as well. He loves the he's a playwright. He loves the idea of people using their words as weapons, and that's awesome, right? For writers, obviously, we find that yeah. great. Um, and and I would say that it's part of the bumps that when Wells takes over the show in season five that you really feel, which is the artificiality of these stakes that he's injecting into a show um, that wouldn't necessarily have them in the way that he's sort of blowing, he's sort of blowing everything a little bit out of proportion. Um, You know, solving the Middle Eastern crisis, for instance, is is one of the, you know, more uh, egregious things that happen in in sort of the the Wells years. Um, But I want to come back to what you were saying, which I totally agree with um, in terms of how felt the stakes Feel on this show, um, even when, like, you know, l- let me give the synopsis for this episode because it'll be a little easier for us to unpack sort of yeah. the philosophical things within this episode. Um, Josh, played by Bradley Whitford, is troubled when he receives a special card informing him of where to safely go in the event of a nuclear attack, a privilege denied to most of his White House coworkers. While Leo, played by John Spencer, instructs the senior staff to meet with various special interest groups, some of whom have wacky agendas. Prior to uh, an important press conference, Toby voices strong opposition to many of uh, Bartlett's plans for an upcoming California trip and later checks out the rumor that he was not the chief executive's choice for the first choice for his job. The president Meanwhile, virtually orders his staff to sample his prized chili when he arranges a reception for his Georgetown-bound daughter, played by Elizabeth Moss. These crackpots and these women aired on October 20th, 1999. It was written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Anthony Drazen. 12.41 million viewers tuned into this episode, which is pretty crazy to think about. Yeah. Um, So I want to kind of, because it it, it speaks so much to what, what we were just talking about, let's unpack the Josh thing, which is the the most, the meatiest part of this episode. Yeah. Um, Which is that, as I just wrote in the synopsis, the NSE uh, give him a card um, because Leo and Bartlett want him on the plane or in the bunker or whatever might very well be in the case of a nuclear attack. Um, This sort of leads to an unpacking of Josh uh, with his therapist a little bit about how his sister died in a fire. He ran out of the house. His sister died he sees that as cowardly and he sort of connects it back to this NSE card and whether or not he, he couldn't leave his friends behind is, is essentially what he's, what he's getting at. Um, which for all intents and purposes is a pretty plotty thing for this show. Yeah. So, you know, what are your thoughts on, on how it's handled, but also sort of the philosophical and the, and the sort of intellectual notions that are, that are packed into it? Honestly, this plot line is is probably my least favorite in the episode, um, e- even though I, I love Bradley Whitford to death. But it I feel like we see a lot of how it's funny now to be able to say this, to see Sorkin as a young writer because he's doing like the, the disembodied therapist scene whom we never see this therapist again. And like it never becomes a thing is so you're a writer in your 20s. Yeah, yeah. It's not great. Um, And and it doesn't, it's interesting because later they got much better at threading the stories together. This one 
they don't really connect in, in a lot of ways, but you know, but it is, it's the first kind of insight. We really get into somebody's backstory. I think in the show, we, we don't, we don't learn a whole lot about anybody until this, this point. So getting that on Josh really informs so much of his character going forward. You see it over and over and over again, this thing where he's worried that everybody around him is going to die. Um, and and that's that's a great setup. Like that's a great thing to put in a character's brain, mm-hmm. uh, and then write seven seasons about. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. You know, um, I haven't watched the first season sort of under this microscope. Um, first of all, ever, but I haven't watched this first season in a little while. So it's been really exciting for me not to, you know, to be able to talk about these episodes with with people like you. But it's also interesting to sort of see first season itis a little bit mm-hmm. a little bit of those sort of the 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 ricketiness that can happen in those first handful of episodes this show obviously hits the ground running and it is a tremendous pilot uh, it only gets better from there but you do sense a little bit of networkiness that's kind of injected into the show a little bit for sure you know in the previous episode we have uh leo's wife and the fallout of 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 the marriage and which feels very networky and kind of clunky and never really kind of resonates for me I know that it's it's there to tee up Leo's addiction issues, which is great. And I I really appreciate all the stuff that they deal with with that. But like Jenny and his wife is basically just a non-thing that just kind of feels shoehorned in there. Um, And with with Bradley's character, with Josh, in this episode, we see sort of the laying of pipe that you've referred to in terms of the, you know, Noel that's coming in the middle of of season two after he's uh, the assassination attempt and he goes through this sort of near-death experience and the the PTSD that comes from that. that to me was a lot more powerful because of this setup, but I would agree with you, this setup isn't great. Yeah, it's, I I mean, it, yeah, you know, it shows that Sorkin has tremendous instincts for character, but he, I don't think his craft had caught up to his talent entirely. 100%. 100%. I, I, and I think that it also speaks to, you You mentioned this earlier, but the elevation of the talent uh, in front of the camera as well. Yeah. I mean, all of these actors, they're getting great words, obviously, but they're just elevating everything and bringing everything up to sort of a, a to a, a much deeper place. Um, I, I also feel like this episode um, is sort of the first overt attempt at a lighter, more comedic episode of The West Wing. Yeah. Um, you know, we just talked about, without a doubt, the heaviest storyline in the episode. The rest of it, for all intents and purposes, is pretty light um, in a good way. You know, I I, I appreciate all of it. Um, I mean, I guess that we'll talk about the Bartlett-Toby stuff, which is really great uh, as well. But, um, you know, this was the first episode, at least so far, where I really felt the sports nighty component. Very much. Absolutely. You know, where where he's, you know... Obviously, uh, we can all safely say that <laughs> that Studio 60 was a bridge too far in terms of him thinking about how funny he is. Um, I think I think Aaron Sorkin is a very funny writer, but he's funny in, in dramatic circumstances as opposed to a straight-up comedy writer. How do yeah, you feel about that? I think he could have gone that way. I mean, I, I th- this is the thing. I, I think his ego gets in the way of him being a great comic writer because <laughs> sure. he, he always, I, I think the real problem with Studio 60 was that he decided to turn it into the West Wing again. Like things, <laughs> yes, you know, there's yes. a four episode arc on a hostage crisis. 
It's crazy. You know, it's crazy. and it's it's just bananas. But you see in Sports Night, like he has, you know, a real Neil Simony kind of sense for the absurd, you know, and 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 for putting characters in silly situations, and it's a lot of fun. But he can't duck the the seriousness of the world for long enough to really lean into that. But I think if he had decided out of Sports Night, no, I'm going to go straight comedy, mm-hmm. the later shows we would have seen from that trajectory would have also been great. But but he just, he, he couldn't shut up about politics ever. <laughs> yeah, or the media. Yeah, Even I mean, in it's... Sports Night, he's doing it a little bit. For sure. No, I mean, that, that's the thing too. I remember when I, I've only seen Sports Night once, so I'm excited to, to watch it again um, and talk with you about it. But um I watched it after seeing The West Wing. Mm-hmm. So it it just sort of, it felt so bizarre to me. In, in, you know what I mean? Like it just, I couldn't really compute it. Um, so I'm excited to, to watch it again through the lens of what has become of, of Aaron Sorkin and, and the various shows and movies that he's done since. But But I agree with you that he is decidedly very funny. Like he knows how to land a joke. Yeah. Um, but he also wants you to think about that joke. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and he, it's, you know, yeah. It's funny. This episode has Toby saying the line about about Bartlett's better angels getting shouted down, and I I yeah. I don't know if you realize that was about himself, himself? when he wrote it, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it was. It's you know I I, I spoke about this uh, a little bit with um with some of our previous guests, but I, I wanted to kind of bring it up to you as well. Obviously, being a writer yourself, you know, this show is about writing. I mean, yes. it's 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 baked into a much bigger thing, but the protagonist, or at least the the original protagonist, was Sam Seaborn, obviously the the deputy communications director. Um, but it's very much about Toby, and it's very much about writing. Yeah. I mean, I I one of the one of my favorite lines in the episode is in the cold open when they're playing basketball, and and Bartlett says, "Do you want to write my eulogy, or do you want to play basketball?" And he's like, "Can I be honest?" Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like there's he. I mean, Toby is is so precious about his words. You know, we have the, have that tremendous. Uh, I think it's I think it's like a ten minute oneer at the top of five votes down, where they're walking out yeah. of that speech, and and literally the meat of it is Toby and and Bartlett talking about how Bartlett went off script, and you know, obviously Sorkin doesn't like people that go off script. Like, there's very much a lot of. Sorkin working through his demons through the sure. show as a writer and 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 as a as a I guess to a certain degree a political mind he doesn't seem all that politically engaged I mean whenever we're in an election year someone asks Aaron Sorkin to chime in and he always kind of goes like well, I don't know both both for the Democrat like it, it just it it it's it's interesting to me um, in terms of the lighter elements uh, we should talk about. The, the the center of this episode, I guess, which is the big block of cheese day, uh, which is Leo's big Andrew Jackson speech where he talks about how uh, Andrew Jackson had a big block of cheese in the foyer and anyone who was hungry would come and eat cheese and they open their <laughs> doors now um, to people to, to talk to them, take meetings with people they wouldn't normally take meetings with. It is, it is a lovely notion and one that I'm sure you know this, but maybe our listeners don't, that Obama embraced in uh, January of 2014. Uh, he didn't actually... The people didn't actually come in to the White House and give meetings, but he opened up basically their online component and had a, a essentially like a Reddit ask me anything. And all these people were able to ask all these questions in order for them to sort of take a day with the press secretary um, and, and the various uh, staff members to really kind of dig into issues that perhaps the White House wouldn't have dug into, uh, uh, you know, normally. It's, again, a lovely notion. 
uh, and opens the doors to some very comedic stuff. Uh, what What are your thoughts about Big Block of Cheese Day? Uh, I mean, I love the concept. Uh, like, it, it's just such a silly and fun setup. And, and you know, it's a great way to highlight the arrogance of the team. Like, Sam in particular is a oh, dick. Yeah. Like, Total he immediately dick. makes fun of the guy's clothes. And it's just <laughs> like... Fuck you, Sam. Um, Seriously. The notion of Big Block of Cheese Day is so funny. It always makes me wonder if, like, were we actually mice in that time? Was Andrew Jackson a little tiny mouse president who was like, I know, I'll solve everything. (laughs) But because, like, wouldn't the cheese mold just the concept is silly. Very quickly, yeah. So so it's ridiculous. But, you know, the the wolves only highway is one of the the funniest things that sort of – so yeah, Pluey and the Wolves Only Hat. You've got Ron Swanson in there too, being being in, being an up, environmental yeah. warrior too, which is like <laughs> yes, yes. the best callback for many years mm-hmm. in the future. Um, so that stuff is a blast. And like you said, yeah, this is the first time he really let fly. Like there's funny stuff in, in the earlier episodes, but this got really silly um, mm-hmm. and was delightful. I, I mean, mm-hmm. just so funny. So funny that they do it again in the later episode. There's a second big block of cheese. There day. is in season two. And it's yeah. equally as funny. That's got the yeah. cartographers for the social cartographers equality. Is fucking incredible. Yeah. That actually, I will say, um, <laughs> the cartographers actually, like I learned something from the cartographers. Yeah. Like that was one of those was like, wait, the map's not right? Like the, the the globe that we think, the map we've been, is not accurate? is amazing. Um, and, and I do love the line in that where <laughs> she's like, wait, you can't do that. Like, yeah. just turn it upside it's down. It's freaking me out. It's yeah. freaking me out. It's fantastic. Um, Pluey and the, and the wolves only roadway uh, is, is tremendous. Um, I love that they're like with investments, it'll only cost the taxpayer $900 <laughs> million. $900 million. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I also truly believe that Alice and Janney's laugh is one of the most infectious laughs ever. Absolutely. It's, it's just so real sounding. It mm-hmm. just, it's, it is tremendous. Um, and, and she's, she's so, I don't know. She's so great in the scene because you do get the sense that she kind of wants to give them the benefit of the doubt. She wants to kind of believe in their, in their thing. Um, which is obviously this wolves only. I, I do wish that we got to see what they had to say about grizzly bears. I know. Bonnie shows up, and you're like, "What's Bonnie's story?" <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's a great thing, and and Sam's thing also. You can see that this guy, this guy from the space command center or something like that, who's convinced that uh, that they need to spend more money on UFOs, and Sam turns out <laughs> he was right. But it also plants the seed because Sam keeps checking in with Kathy, his assistant, about the thing that's, you know, hasn't landed yet. What's going on with that? So it's and all of this sort of really kind of speaks to uh, I agree with you that the episode doesn't the the dovetailing of the storylines doesn't totally work. Right. But then Bartlett comes in and gives this just unbelievable speech that wraps the whole thing up in a bow and really kind of pulls everything together. And we can get to that. We'll get to that in a second. Um, we also meet Zoe for the first time. Uh, Charlie meets Zoe, more importantly. And I always loved them. I thought they were adorable together. I really felt like... Super they had cute. A, yeah. A really lovely relationship between them. Um, you know, 
I, I, I posited this to to Alex Berger when we did, um, uh, I guess it's a proportional response, which is Charlie's first episode, and how you know Sorkin got kind of um, taken to task by the uh, TCAs when the show premiered for not having enough diversity in the show, and they quickly. Uh, you know, created this Charlie character. Um, and Charlie was always one of my favorite characters, but I, I would argue that he kind of never fully becomes, I, I'm not sure that the character is given as much weight in the later seasons as I would have liked. Like, I feel like every kind of character within your senior staff really gets their storylines or their moment to shine or their big Emmy, you know, opportunities. I'm not entirely sure that Dulé Hill and Charlie gets as much as I would have liked, but what, what, how do you feel about Charlie? Yeah. I mean, he's such a great actor and he, there's so much in that character later on that, that becomes so fun and and interesting. Um, But yeah, I always, you know, there's, there's the tier that's, that's Toby, Josh, CJ, Sam. And then there's like Donna and Charlie who are kind of, secondary cast members uh which again was probably not the best idea um yeah. he, he definitely could have cast this uh, it's hard because the actors are so amazing but yeah. but we could have had more characters we could have had different characters um that would have been equally awesome and not all white so you know yeah. but Dulé hill is spectacular so he's good. so much fun you know he he brings it's great to have a couple of characters that don't know the system at all because we didn't really have that in the pilot. There's no surrogate for the audience to be like, I don't understand what, you know, the debt ratio is. Um, yeah. And then Donna and Charlie end up doing that constantly. Correct. Correct. Donna, maybe more so than Charlie. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it, they do, it, it's, that's a really good comparison. I do feel like the, the Charlie and Donna are really sort of the, the, second tier and with so many quote-unquote mouths to feed as a writer and a showrunner you know it it, it's understandable why josh uh, sorry charlie and donna don't get necessarily as much donna gets a lot more down the road less so with charlie yeah i mean donna gets to become for all intents and purposes a full-fledged part of the administration and she almost gets blown up in Gaza, oh my I God, think. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, she, there's, she does get to have an affair with Jason Isaacs, though. So she does. She kind of worth it, really. Kind kind of worth it. I mean, Janelle's given a lot more to do than Dulé. And and I and and I think that that's I don't know if that's indicative of of the way that the show started to branch outside the Bartlett administration in future seasons, right? It becomes clear that if the show's going to have any legs past season seven or eight, it's going to be in a new administration. Yeah. So they start to try to, you know, get all the the pieces in play for that to happen. And, and Donna becomes sort of parts of other, you know, uh, orbiting things, whereas Charlie is kind of, He's totally he beca- backgrounded at the end. I yeah. think John Wells just wasn't interested in that character at all. Yeah, he becomes CJ's assistant when she becomes the chief of staff. And then you're just sort of like, anyway, so it is what it is. But all that being said, uh, Zoe and, and Charlie meet in this episode, which becomes a a point of drama, I guess, that leads to the assassination attempt at the end of season one. Spoiler. But I do think that... Um, I love Dulé as an actor and I love how felt like you just, you, his words, just everything seems to land so hard with him in such a great way. Um, that that's just really tremendous. Um, when he finds out, for instance, that 
that the president wasn't the target at the top of season two, it just breaks his heart. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's really, really, really special stuff. Um, so I, I just sort of want to, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of bounce around a little bit here, but the, the pilot, the, sorry, this episode opens with a cold open of them playing a game of pickup basketball uh, outside the white house, uh, real white house. Uh, I, I, John Wells apparently had to twist a lot of arms in order to get that to happen, but eventually they were able to, to do it. And it, it really, Really does add that oh, yeah. power of just like this is fucking cool. Um, Toby has a great line. It's not so much that you cheat; it's how brazenly bad at it you are. <laughs> is amazing when Bartlett brings in a, a an absolute ringer of a basketball player from the sense to play, which is amazing. Um, and then we uh, post uh, credits. We have a Josh and Donna cute scene where she's talking about her dating life and and. They have their witty banter and and what are what what are your Josh and Donna thoughts, Jessica? It's uh, it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. Yeah, I know that's why I'm, I'm I'm teeing it up for you. I am glad they never got together until Donna was on a more equal footing of power. Um, but this is one of those plots that does not age well. Not so much in this episode. In this episode, it's fine. But Josh's controlling nature over Donna and her dating life is so shitty. Uh, it's just, it's a little brutal to, to watch now. You, you wish Donna would do better, like, cause Josh does not yeah. have his shit together. Yeah. It's night. I, I fully agree with you. The, the, the two big bumps I have in this episode are both about gender. So I yes. want to kind of unpack both of these things. Yeah. Um, but with this specifically, the Josh and Donna thing um, is, to your point, the power dynamic, right? Yeah. Um, I don't think that it's being written that way necessarily. Like, I don't think that they're even cognizant of it. Yeah. I think they're just like, this is cute and fun. And which isn't to say that it that, that makes it okay, but I think that it it certainly as I watch it, I can kind of turn my brain off a little bit and just enjoy their witty banter and enjoy their undeniable chemistry. Yes. Um there's an argument to be made for the fact that Donna does control him in ways too, but it's weird and it's kind of icky to think about. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's it was just not something really being talked about in 99. We were not talking about, you know, like people dating their secretaries was a trope. And and they do. They never really cross a line until they're not working in a in a imbalanced relationship. Really. I mean, I, they still sort of are on, on the Santos campaign. But, like, she's gone off. She's established yes, herself. Yes, yes. She ran yeah. another campaign. It's fine. But, yeah, like, you do kind of just go, eh, this is one of the this is one of those ones that's not egregiously offensive enough that you're like, oh, I'm uncomfortable. This is sort of like, yeah, the 90s. Yeah, it's it definitely. I I I fully agree with you that they never cross any lines. There is a whole lot of pregnant pauses and a lot of doe-eyed looks across rooms for sure for for the better part of seven seasons. Um, and and I think that this sort of speaks as well to, um, Sorkin's handling of soap or romantic entanglements in the workplace. It's not one of his strengths. No. Um. You know, it, it's it, and he kind of falls back on on tropey stuff, which you just sort of alluded to. Um, a lot of 
um, exes that are forced to work together in the workplace, um, which again, like is a trope that I don't necessarily hate. Um, but if it's executed in the way that he executed it, for instance, in the newsroom, uh, you know, or, or <laughs> for those who couldn't see Jessica's face, it, uh, it was a lot. It was great. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that it's, and, and this is sort of a good way of talking about the Mandy part of this as well, because you know, we've talked about this in previous episodes a little bit, but Mandy was brought in to be the love interest for Josh. It was his ex has come to work at the White House and they're going to, but it never goes there because they kind of have like a weird brotherly energy. They have no chemistry at all. Nothing. Yeah. No. And and Donna immediately has it with Bradford. Like yeah. it's just like uh, Bradley Whitford that is. It, it is just really immediate that like Manny never had a chance, but I, I guess I kind of want to sort of hone in on this for a second because it does feel like Sorkin doesn't really want to do this stuff within this show. Like the, the Josh and Donna thing is perfect for him. Cause he just keeps kicking it down the road. And it's just like them just looking at each other and being witty. And like, that's all he ever wants out of yeah. the romantic entanglements. When it gets deeper than that is when he trips over himself. Yes. Yeah. Well, and again, this is why this was the show I turned to when I was divorced and not wanting to think about romance is there's very little romance in it. There's there, other than Charlie and, and uh, Zoe, yeah. you know, everybody is divorced or they have a yeah. really difficult marriage. There's not a sweeping yeah. romance in the entire thing. And thank God we don't need that in everything. I agree. I mean, Josh and Amy Gardner also have a pretty like yeah. Barbie kind of, you know, the throwing barbs back and forth is a prickly kind of relationship between the two of them to your point. Like it doesn't feel as though, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. This is not a show about that. Even the, even the Bartlett's, even the first lady and the president, I mean, their marriage is prickly a lot of the time too. Um, which, which would also kind of goes to like, that's good television. Like uh, sure. the, only, the only functional marriage that I can think of, is are on Jason Kadem shows. <laughs> like the only ones that I can think of that I like watching are, you know, uh, Tammy and Eric on Friday Night Lights or Parenthood, yeah. where weirdly he finds a way to make functional relationships seem entertaining. Yeah. I, I'm not, I, so, but, but all that being said, uh, romance is never really at the forefront of this show. Um, so, which is a good thing. I, I think that that's probably for the best. Um, I want to talk about these women, and I put that in quotation marks, because this is sort of the... the Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
This is the part of the episode that bumps me the most. Yes. Yeah, for sure. So, and I very much want to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, to, to tee it up a little bit, the end of the episode, uh, the, the infamous chili uh, that, that Zoe is making with Charlie, there's sort of this party-like atmosphere. Um, and they sort of, they round off the Josh storyline by him telling uh, Bartlett and Leo that he wouldn't feel comfortable having this card from the NSE um, and that he couldn't look his friends in the eyes. And then Bartlett and Leo become old white guys and start talking about, quote unquote, these women. Look at these women is essentially what they say. And they kind of work their way through all the various women on the show. CJ, Mrs. Landingham, Mandy, uh, Donna, Margaret, and uh, Kathy. Um, And they speak of them in a way that's very wistful and very sort of like very pat on the head kind yes. of like look at these amazing women and what they've accomplished in a world of men um i think it's got the best of intentions <laughs> even if it is a f- it, it is really toned deaf what are your thoughts on this oh yeah i mean it's it's just incredibly patronizing it's it's infuriating <laughs> especially because most of the women are secretaries and assistants there yeah. and it's like yeah. yeah maybe if you weren't in their fucking way they wouldn't be in these jobs um <laughs> It, no, it just, it's just so patronizing. It, it makes you, it, it makes me extremely uncomfortable that far. And they also, like, they describe CJ as like a 50s movie star. And it's just gross, 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 bad male writing. It's, it's brutal. And, and to underline it, it's in the title. Yeah. Like, the episode is called These Crackpots and These Women. Um, which, by the way, like, insulting on both sides. Like, yes. insulting the, the quote-unquote crackpots, even though these people are incredibly dedicated to their causes, even if their causes seem a little bit off-center. Yeah. Um, and then These Women, which, to your point, is is just brutally patronizing. Uh, just goes to show, I think, again, the 90s. Yes. Um but also, I'm not entirely convinced <laughs> that Aaron Sorkin's grasp of women has drastically changed. No. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> no, I, I have not seen a sign of it, if if that is the case. It's it's interesting how he, and, and I want to kind of zoom out on Sorkin a little bit and talk about just his female characters, because I think that this is a, a, a prime opportunity to do so, and I very much want to hear your thoughts on it. Um, because I don't think that he's incapable or hasn't written multidimensional female characters. I think that he has. But I also think that the prism with which he views them is odd. Exactly. I think that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, I, I mean, he... He does. He, you know, CJ is one of the best TV characters that's ever existed. I, I think, and and Allison Janney is just tremendous. And thank thank God that he brought her to the forefront of everyone's lives. Um, <laughs> and you know, on Sports Night, you have Dana, who's Felicity Huffman, who is incredible. Um, you know, and and I really like actually on Studio Sixty. I love Amanda Peet's character, who was kind of based on Jamie Tarsus, the executive. And and you know, I think that's a really good character too. But yeah. I think his internalized misogyny and paternalism 
the the women don't feel real and any guy who compares you to an Aaron Sorkin character you need to run i have discovered in my life um, oh no has someone yo, done that to oh, you oh yes oh yeah oh boy yeah uh, so <laughs> that is that is i thought it was a compliment at the time and learned mm. an important lesson um mm-hmm. but yeah it's it just get, he gets in his own way he doesn't see women as people really he which doesn't mean he doesn't like women he just doesn't see them on the same plane as men at least in his writing yeah they're they're foils in a lot of ways um you know they're 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 um excuses for banter in in a lot of ways it feels like sometimes i mean i think that he got he got hit pretty hard um with social network uh, for the lack of of uh, female characters in, in that movie, um, even though I'm not sure that's necessarily the movie. That one making, bothers me less but, because that's a misogynistic story. It doesn't right, make exactly. sense that there'd be women centered in it. Right, um, for sure. Uh, but but because of those knocks, it feels like he went out of his way with Molly's game to say, "I'm going to make a movie about a woman." Who's going to be the center of this movie? Um, and 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 I don't even I wouldn't even say that Molly Bloom is is not a dimensional character or or an uninteresting one or not well acted by by Jessica Chastain. I don't necessarily dislike that movie. I don't love that movie, um, but it I, it still feels like a look at this woman in a man's world finding her way. It's it's just it it really feels like the only way he views women as uh antagonists like they have to be like clawing their way up in a man's world is the only kind of way that he sees it well and he mistakes character flaws in women for um incapability you know his constant thing that he does over and over again is women that are amazing professionally and cannot get their romantic shit together and that that's not a character flaw that they just seem insane especially as you get into the newsroom they seem completely like inhuman and ridiculous uh you know and like the way you said it like i'm gonna write a story about a woman can you imagine approaching a story like that like i'm going to write a feature about a man no one does that no one does that just the fact that you have to to single it out like it's an alien is the problem in a nutshell there's also a little bit of um there's no question that that Aaron Sorkin is is a fan of of a an older style of writing for sure. Um, you know, I I feel like he just is constantly wanting to write his girl Friday. I mean, mm-hmm. like he just he wants sassy women who are kind of clumsy and funny and comedic. I mean, it's it's why. Like you see so much of it in CJ, right? I mean, you see so much of it in. I mean, it's in her literal introduction of her like falling falling off, off the treadmill. treadmill. Yep. And 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 again, I don't necessarily take issue with the idea of wanting comedians. The idea of of a, of a of a funny female protagonist. Um, but but it's again, it comes back to sort of this like it feels patronizing even if it's not intended to feel that way. Well, and when you look at his can, you know, when you can pull back and look at his canon, like, can he write women as anything else? He can write them as comedians or he can write them as bitches. And that's it. Yeah. (laughs) Brutally honest and true. But yes, no, I I know. And I would expect nothing less from you. Uh, Honestly, I I, I honestly agree with you. I I think that um, he, he doesn't know how to sort of, write a nuanced 
female character. Um, and it's, it's, it is unfortunate. I, I don't, I don't know that it's something that he's, I mean, we're going to get his Lucille ball soon. So we have that uh, to look forward to maybe possibly yeah. don't know. I think it's an interesting thing that Lucille ball is what he's honed in. Like that to me feels like the opportunity for him to absolutely succeed or fail on all the things that he continues to fail on. Do you sort of know what I'm saying? Like there's yeah. an opportunity here for that care, for that person to fulfill a lot of the things that he wants to speak about. And he could do it in a nuanced, interesting way. Not convinced he's going to. Well, it, you know, it, it's the, it's the thing of context. If he was writing a Lucille Ball movie, if he was writing a movie for Lucille Ball in the time that she was acting, it would probably be great. But yeah. you ha- you have to be able to absorb yeah. sixty years of context on women and and feminism and stuff. And I I am not convinced from his work that he has done so. It is. Uh, I'll say this. Do you know what the what the movie is about? Have you? I really don't. I, yeah, I don't is, know much about it. When I when I tell you right now that what it is about, you will be like, yeah, of course. Uh, it is about one day in the filming of an episode of I Love Lucy and the behind the scenes machinations of what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> That's not surprising. He loves he loves a behind the yeah. scenes. He loves a behind the scenes. Uh, I mean, listen, I don't, I don't, I you know, I hope the movie's great. Legitimately, I, I yeah. thought the Chicago Seven was fine. Uh, I, I I wish that I liked it more. Um, I, I I stand by the fact that I'm not convinced that Aaron Sorkin is the best director of his own words. Yes, I will agree with that. Uh, yeah, I liked Chicago Seven. Uh, I would say up until the ending like the mm-hmm. i he yeah that was a place where it was interesting because we could see this thing of how he wants to win all wars with words really feeling Absolutely. hollow yeah yep 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 but you otherwise also, i mean it was great like it was an enjoyable film totally you know it's 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 so interesting because i feel like i just recently watched malice which that movie is straight up bonkers i mean i have never crazy. seen it um, he he! It's him and Scott Frank who wrote the script, which you would think it would be unbelievable. It's a very yeah. strange film. Um, but but then you look at Moneyball and you look at Social Network and you see people who understand um, how great a writer Aaron Sorkin is and where the emphasis needs to go. Like they understand the modulations and the dials, whereas Aaron Sorkin wants everyone to say every word of his at eleven. Yeah. So you're just like you're you're hurting your words because you just become numb to it right like you're just beating us down with the the sort of the the power of the words that he's written it's 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 not great um that being said <laughs> i do think that um uh there's there's two other sort of uh things that i wanted to talk about a little bit in this episode the first is um the toby bartlett situation at the center of this episode, which is that Mandy is trying to get uh, them to do a Hollywood fundraiser when they go to LA deeper in in the season, uh, which I think happens uh, at the beginning of the year 2000. So we will not be covering those episodes, but they do a two-parter where they go to LA or maybe it's a one-parter, I don't know. But um, 
and Bob Balaban plays the movie producer. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, but but uh, so so Mandy's trying to kind of tee up all of this. And again, like this goes to speak, this speaks to me at least in terms of how they just don't have much fodder for Mandy's character. Like they really just don't have much for her to do. Yeah. Like we're, we're teeing up something in, you know, that's not going to happen for five or six episodes or maybe even longer. Um, long story short, they have a scene in the, in the Oval Office where Toby says, I'm writing a speech for you right now talking about how Hollywood uh, and its obsession with violence is bad for, for the country. It seems a little bit sort of hypocritical for you to then go do a Hollywood fundraiser. Uh, Twitch Bartlett says, why can't both of these things coexist? I'm not really sure why. We can't do both these things. Um, and they kind of get into it a little bit. Uh, and then at the end of the episode, or sort of during the episode, Toby realizes that he hears rumors that he was the second choice to be the communications director. So at the very end, he confronts Bartlett and asks him if he was the second choice. And Bartlett says, yeah, you were my second choice. <laughs> like, I wanted this other guy. Um, but everyone said it needed to be you. It needed to be you. And then he says, I couldn't live without you, Toby. I mean it. I'd be in the tall grass. If I had a nickel for every time Aaron Sorkin has said tall grass, yeah. uh, I'd be rich. But all that being said, um, it really highlights what I think is one of the most interesting relationships on the show, which is the relationship between Bartlett and Toby, two men from very different upbringings, two men who, uh, two religious men for all intents and purposes, uh, mm-hmm. from two very different religions, two very different upbringings. Um, and and the fact that Bartlett needs Toby to keep his feet to the fire, but hates himself for needing Toby to keep his feet to the fire. What are your thoughts on their relationship? Yeah, it's certainly one of the best written relationships on the on the show. And is it's such a this is the thing, is I think Sorgan writes men better than anybody else. He just needs to it's it's sad to say, but he just needs to stop trying to write women. Uh, but but yeah, like the the fact that these are two men with such deeply held beliefs, such ego, such moral philosophy that are in constant conflict with each other. It's yeah. not that either one of them is wrong. I mean, honestly, in that argument, both of them sort of have a point. But they ha- them trying to forge a way forward together is a very painful and prickly path that comes back over and over again in the show and is always great. It's always great. I mean, Martin Sheen and 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 Richard Schiff just lay it down in yeah. every scene together. Um, it's it's such a great relationship. And I don't remember having seen a relationship like that on TV before at the time when I when I first saw this. Uh, something that was that it's. I don't want to call it romantic because it doesn't have any kind of a sexual yeah. compound to it, but it's such a deeply vulnerable and personal relationship between these two. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, you know, it's we're we're going to have sort of this conversation as 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 we do these sort of parallel miniseries, which is The West Wing and The Sopranos, and sort of this moment when both these shows premiere in 1999. This is sort of the a fulcrum point for the entire industry of television. Um, and and Sopranos is the future. The West Wing is the past. Yep. They obviously have sort of a Venn diagram of of crossover. And I think one of the really interesting relationships in The Sopranos is the the Melfi tony relationship the the relationship he has with his with his psychiatrist and you can't help but feel a little bit of that in the bartlett toby relationship which is that toby calls him out on his shit and toby gets inside his head and tony and and tony soprano and and josiah bartlett hate having people inside their heads uh they hate that they need it they hate that they need guidance they think that there's a strength to them they feel like there's a weakness in that 
in the yeah. meeting of other people, um, which I think is really fascinating. And, and I think uh, is beautifully unpacked over the course of the series. And it's why so many people took issue with the way that Toby's character was resolved at the end of the series. Yeah. Um, because it did feel as though they kind of, um, I don't know, they, they kind of didn't really give Toby the farewell that maybe he deserved um, or did deserve, quite frankly. Um, but, you know, 17 people is a perfect example of that, you know, the, oh. in season two. Yeah where it's pretty clear that Aaron Sorkin just writes a play for the two of them in the Oval Office, but it's, it's unreal. It's, it's tremendous. Yeah, that and, and the episode two, is it uh, night five or the one right before night five where Toby talks to him about his yeah. abusive father is, yeah. is so brutal and so painful to yes. watch, you know, and really damages Bartlett intensely. <laughs> yep. um, and, and is just incredible. Yeah, anytime they're on, as much as I love the Leo Bartlett relationship, uh, like yeah, I don't think the show would have worked without Toby and 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 Bartlett. It, it's really an astonishing piece of writing every time. Yeah, it's it. He really. Um... I mean, even uh, Hartfield's Landing, which they beautifully uh, did a staging of for for the 2020 election. Yeah. Um, you know, them playing chess together uh, is really, it's it's a beautiful scene where Toby's like, you sure you want to do this? Last time we, we spoke, it didn't go so well. He's like, well, I got to get back on the horse. Like, yeah. it, it, it's, um, yeah, it, it's it's a really special relationship. One of the, one of the most, certainly one of the most special in this show. And, and uh Unlike anything I had seen like this on television up until yeah. this point, um, so yeah, I, I do really love that, and and uh, I, I want to kind of there's two two Bartlett things I wanted to highlight real quick at the end of the episode. The first is Bartlett says, "I don't know why, but nothing makes me feel quite so good as the sight of colleagues enjoying each other outside of work." Um, I feel exactly the same way, and I don't know why. There's something about camaraderie. There's something about the fact that you work with all these people. You all have sort of a common goal, um, and everyone just sort of like letting their hair down and just enjoying each other's company. Uh, just, I don't know. I really love it. It unfortunately leads to these women, so there's yeah. that. But it starts off in a place that I agree with. Um, and then Bartley gives just this unbelievable speech where he folds all of the storylines together into this beautiful little package. And, and the episode ends with this beautiful, phrase of our eyes look towards the heavens and with outstretched fingers we touch the face of God and it's one of those things that this show um, and I very much want to hear your thoughts on it walks such a fine line of being maudlin and, and mawkish and silly and 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 cloying in its own weird way um, but the delivery by Martin Sheen the, the ability to be able to take these words that in lesser hands would seem melodramatic and silly and make them feel like poetry is just tremendous. And I'm, I'm curious as to what you think of that. I mean, I, I think that's really why I fell in, in love with the show because I, I came up as a playwright. So, you know, the, the power of the language is, is so critical to me. And, you know, you have to, when you're dealing with language like that, when you're dealing with something like Shakespeare, you have to create a world in which it's not silly, in which yes. no one watching it is going to go this sounds ridiculous or you're dead <laughs> and it's so hard to create that on television it's so hard I mean it was such a risk to make this show knowing what Sorkin's writing was yeah. at the time and and you know knowing he had these very florid poetic tendencies but damned if they didn't pull it off they really for, for the oh I do think it wore thin um and now that I think we live in a more transparently difficult world. 
it's harder to give language the power that it had even, even, you know, 20 years ago, but yeah, no, I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautiful and it works. So it's fine. (laughs) Yeah. I know. I, I agree with you a hundred percent, you know, um, for the pilot episode, I had Alan Seppenwall and Emily Vanderwerf on and, and, uh, Emily, uh, has some very, um, powerful and and uh, and certainly not untrue words about what the west wing has done to political uh perception this idea of the power of words that this show conveys and the sad reality of the world that we live in that they don't have the power um, that they do within the conscious of this show. I mean, you only have to look at sort of the two shows that 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 came off of this show, which is Scandal and then House of Cards, to see what is a probably more accurate depiction of how of the sort of the the bloodbath that is the political landscape in this country. Um, so I, I guess I'm curious as to sort of what you think about that notion of do you think that Sorkin did us a disservice in some way or another by making us believe in, in the power of civil service? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I can certainly see Emily's point and she, yeah. she's not wrong. Yeah. But also we have Joe Biden as president who is about of a, of a West wingy president as you mm-hmm. could ask for. He is someone who believes in the power of coming together. I honestly yeah. think he believes in coming together and yeah. good people trying to accomplish yeah. things and, and, you know, those kind of ideals. Um, so it's not dead. It's just not something we see reflected that yeah. often in people um, and in politics, which is sad. I, I wish you know, I think in the 90s, this was a show about how it could ideally work. And mm-hmm. now it feels like a fantasy because we've gone through 20 years of absolute hell since this <laughs> came out. You know, po- just a political nightmare. Yeah, it's been but pretty bad. <laughs> I will say, you know, Obama was an amazing orator. That was one of his best qualities. And I wonder, would he have gotten the response in the in the 2008 primaries he did if Democrats were not primed with the West Wing? I hope he would have. But like, totally. he was speaking like Jed Bartlett out there. He's a beautiful speaker. And, and you know, we had all fallen in love with this show. And and he was a junior senator. Like the fact that he got nominated in 2008 was astonishing. And I, I wonder, it, we can say like there's been harm done by this show, but there's probably also been positive things done by it as well. I, I agree. I mean, and I would imagine that people feel the same way about the Obama administration, which is yeah. a lot of good came out of it. And, and unfortunately, the fallout from it has been also severe, not based on anything that Obama did, just based on any number of exterior things that were going on around it. Um, it, it is, it, it's, it's very interesting to sort of, uh, to watch this show now with, thank God, Joe Biden as the president is really interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned this a little bit before, but, you know, Bartlett's a very religious man. Um, there's a lot of Bartlett in, in Biden, to your point. Absolutely. There's a lot of that sort of that idea of someone who um, who believes in 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 a higher power, you know, believes in something that that's bigger than them um, and and the power of of uh, of commonality and and groups of people coming together to do things. I I agree with you. I think that's I think that's a very um, 
That's very true. Um, so uh, at the end of each episode, I've been asking my guests what their favorite episode of the West Wing. It doesn't need to be your favorite favorite. It can be a favorite. I know picking a number one is always... It's, 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 so, so. it's so hard. It's so hard. <laughs> I, it, it really is impossible. Give me a couple if you want. I'm in no right. hurry. I don't have any uh, well, well, there's a... I love the comedic episodes of West Wing. I think they're so much fun. So in that direction, my favorite is Celestial Navigation, which... One. I, I mean, is just with CJ's root canal and the secret plan to fight inflation and everything is just one of the silliest, most hilarious things they ever did. I laugh. I mean, I've seen that episode 25 times and I laugh every single time. Um, and then in the more serious direction, I, I mean, we've mentioned it a few times in this episode, but Noel is yeah. just yep. unmatchable. You know, Adam Arkin is so great. And it's just... The, the the poetics of that, the the way it deals with PTSD, the flashback struck, everything about it works. It works perfectly. Um yeah. I, I yeah, both those episodes are, are tremendous. I, I I have a couple of favorite moments from each of those that I want to highlight for a quick second. In 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 Celestial Navigation, um Josh going to the president at the end and saying, you might get asked about your secret plan to fight inflation. <laughs> and Bartlett being like, so let me get this straight. Not only do I have a secret plan to fight inflation, but I'm not for it. You don't support it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just all of them like creeping into the Oval Office at six in the morning the next day, having totally destroyed everything. It's incredible. Uh, it's it's a really, really, it is a wonderful episode. Um it's also it, it also uses a structure that has since become very tropey, but the idea of Josh speaking at a at a university and using that as your narrative structure and jumping around in time through that um, is just great, and, yeah. and I love it, and it always works. Um, in in Noel, it's the scene with um, Josh and Leo at the end um, when Leo says a guy falls into a hole. And his friend jumps in with him and says, why did you do that? I was like, I know the way out. Yeah. Um, it is just beautiful. Like, that's another relationship. That's a father-son relationship. Very much. You know what I mean? And, and, and Leo, who, I mean, we do get Mallory and, and the wife for a brief second. But ultimately, Leo is all about his work family. And it's clear that Josh is very much his son. Um, it's, it's, really, it's a really beautiful relationship. Everyone claims Josh is their son. You get the moment in two cathedrals too, where Bartlett calls him his son. Of course, of course. I don't know. Yes. I don't know why they all think they all think Josh is their son. And like nobody wants Sam. They just all have claimed Josh. Well, I, so I want to ask you one last question. Um, I'm. I, I know that we're both rewatching Friends. Weirdly, just coincidentally, yes. um, I think you're farther into it than I am. I just started the second season, so I'm. I'm still in early days. But I couldn't help but feel some Chandler and Josh. Yeah, I think so. And and honestly, I, I wonder how much of that is informed to just uh, by how much we know about Matthew Perry now and what he was sure, going through sure. making that show. Like, but there is there is a there is a bit of torture in Chandler um, that there really isn't in any of the other characters. Like everybody else's flaws are really quirky and and kind of overblown. Chandler, you're a little worried about. Yes, he he seems. Uh a little bit more broken than the rest of them. Yeah. Um, it's also funny to think, I mean, obviously with Studio 60 in the future and with Matthew Perry showing up on the West Wing, th- there's an alternate universe where I could see Matthew play- Perry playing Josh Lyman. For sure. Um, you know, they, they have a similar comedic sensibility, a similar delivery. They essentially become the 
I guess the two yin and yangs inside Aaron Sorkin for Studio 60. Um, so there is that. But, uh, and they, yeah, it, it, it's, yeah, I guess I just didn't really make that connection. But watching Friends recently, I'm just like, my God, there's definitely some Sorkin-esque-ness in, in Matthew Perry for sure. Yeah, well, and honestly, I mean, like, I I know everybody makes fun of Studio 60, but it had some really strong points, and it had one of the, my favorite pilots that I've ever seen. I love that pilot. pilot. And Matthew Perry and Bradley Whitford sell, like, I believe those guys have been working together for, for 15 years. There's no question. Like, they seem like best friends, and mm-hmm. they really pulled that off. But, yeah. Uh, I mean, I've watched Studio 60 many times. Me too. I, I enjoy it. Uh, I, I, think it's, I think it's insane. Like, every time I watch it, I think to myself... It is the most blank checky television show ever. Yeah. Like it's the most like only Aaron Sorkin could get this show made and and they let him make an entire season of it. Like most it, it's it's crazy how expensive it was. It was just him pu- putting himself all his chips on the table and being like I'm going to make a show that's thinly veiled version of my own life um is is pretty insane, but I still yeah. enjoy the hell out of it. There are some amazing parts. Yeah, like I said, I love Amanda Pete's character. I love I can't think of his name, the guy that's the network president exactly Oh, guy right, Stephen Weber. Stephen Weber. He is so great. You know, the, unfortunately, the sketch stuff never Ugh. really worked, despite having great actors attached to it. It's just <laughs> they needed to hire some sketch writers. I don't They also, know. you know, I, I, I want to, this is actually a perfect way to come full circle to wrap this up, but the show also suffers from, and I don't know if it's network, I don't know whose involvement it is, but that like the stakes of the show when when the sort of the John Wellesian need for like real stakes start to infiltrate the show, you're just like, wait, so they lost like don't they lose an animal under the stage? At one Three point? animals, yes. They learn they lose they lose a snake and then they send a ferret down and then they send a coyote down. And it's, and just it's a two parter. Yes. <laughs> like if you pitch that today, people would be like, I'm sorry? Like <laughs> What are you doing? Like, it's so batshit that that show exists. And that's kind of why I love it. It's such inside baseball, though, because the stakes make a lot more sense if you know anything about how the industry Mm -hmm. operates. But I imagine to anybody totally outside it, it was like, what the what, what the fuck does this have to do with anything? Yeah. It, it also speaks to and, and I'm curious about your thoughts on this. This is an idea that Sorkin has of the level of celebrity he thinks people inside these little bubbles have like in five in five votes down at the end of it josh has a fan like a group of fans that scream his name yeah and then like in studio 60 in the pilot there's a bunch of people trying to get autographs from the showrunners of snl or i mean the essential essentially that these people don't know who these people are. There's no one out there that's clamoring for the autographs of Joshua Lyman. Weirdly, with like stan culture and stuff that's sprung up, it may be true. more accurate <laughs> now. now. Like now, now people are like, sure. yes, the assistant director sure. on the sixth season of The Magicians, sure. you know, or whatever. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I never could figure out if that was, you know, masturbatory or, or, just if he was just wrong, I, 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 I'm not sure why. Yeah. And like the head comedy writer, you know, Matthew, Matthew Perry's character has slept with like yeah. 17 A-list celebrities that yeah. they bring up. And it's like, yeah. really? can I just say though, that the term that you just stated, I can't tell if it's masturbatory or wrong <laughs> could sum up Aaron Sorkin. 
<laughs> By and large. We say as we watch all of his shows yeah, no, multiple I mean, times, we love even them. the bad ones. For yeah. sure, for sure. Like, I mean, it's it's just, I think that, you know, you got to keep your 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 idols, you know, as close yeah. to the ground as you possibly can. And I, and I think that he's one of those guys um, who probably can't see the forest for the trees a little bit, is definitely inside his own little ecosystem of like dad rock and various other things. <laughs> like... The needle drop of of, uh, of uh, Dire Straits in uh, um, Two Cathedrals is tremendous, right? Like, it's an amazing needle drop of the rain, but it's also just, like, the most dad rock song you could possibly pick. And it works. So, like, you know, whatever. He's very excited if Dave Matthews Band is going on tour now that the pandemic is ending. <laughs> He's super happy about that, I'm sure. It's, he's very, very excited about that. That's like his favorite thing. I, and I say that as a huge Dave Matthews fan. Sure. I mean, speaking of Dave Matthews, I read this bizarre thing yesterday on the on uh, Instagram of this girl and her boyfriend. Uh, did you freeze again? Can you hear me? No. No, you're there? Yeah. Okay, I'm good. just listening. Um, yeah, I'm there. Uh, so this girl and her boyfriend are driving to the Dave Matthews concert, and they see a guy on the side of the road, and his bike has a flat tire. Turns out it's Dave Matthews. They, Dave Matthews uh, gets in their car. They give him a lift. He gives them front row seats, backstage passes, mentions them in the, at the top of the concert. And I'm just like, I think that's adorable. But That I mean, is extremely adorable. He seems very, like a very nice man who writes very like pleasant music. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming on, Jessica, and talking about the West Wing with me. I very oh, much abs- appreciate it. Any time, any episode, I will be here. I look forward to talking about uh, Sports Night with you sometime in the near future yes. and and inevitably bringing you back on the main feed for a movie that no one really wants uh, to talk about, but that, you know, hopefully we can force you into watching another bad movie. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> That's my favorite thing. All right. Thank you again, Jessica. Thanks so much, Phil. One last thing. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989. Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Also, please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's. Thank you to Ernie and Will for producing our episode, Sullivan for our social media, Yon Katas for our artwork and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening. It's 1999. Podcast like it's. You want the podcast like it's. 1999. <laughs> 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 